BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the pandemic is taking a toll on the mental health of children and teenagers. The CDC finds emergency visits for mental health reasons have spiked more than 30% among teens, by more than 20% among children 5 to 11 years old. And surveys show increases in thoughts of suicide among young people. Increased isolation, families struggling financially, and fears of getting sick are pushing some youth to the brink. We learn more after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. As the pandemic has reached its one-year marker, more parents and mental health professionals are hearing from young people or seeing in their behavior that they just can't do this anymore. The isolation, the screen learning, or living under the constant fear of the virus, among other things. We look this hour at the mental health of children and teens. Joining me is Ken Barrick, President and CEO of Seneca Family of Agencies, a nonprofit mental health crisis and social services agency for children. Ken Barrick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Also with us is Dr. Nadia Ward, professor, psychologist, and director at the Mosokowski Institute for Public Enterprise at Clark University, an institute focused on reimagining behavioral health for youth. Dr. Ward, thanks for joining us as well. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here. Glad to have you with us. And Dr. Ward, I'll start with you. A CNN piece coined what I was describing there in, there in the introduction of children reaching this breaking point as hitting, quote, a pandemic wall. Are you seeing that in your own work or even in your family? As I understand, you are the parent of a teenager as well. Yes, absolutely we're seeing that. So to address the first point, certainly, um, you know, young people are absolutely stressed out about this pandemic and and we can appreciate their perspective as we begin to explore what is happening with them kind of in terms of their internal world, because we know that, um, and my particular area of expertise is working with adolescents and young adults, this is a time where they are really becoming more self-aware, understanding who they are, what they value, their problem solving, making decisions, appreciating perspectives of other people. And a lot of that happens, that growth and development happens in relationship with other peers. And so 
Obviously, the context of the school setting becomes important. Um, those developmental milestones that young people have to kind of go through and achieve become important. And so when the pandemic hits, you know, and there's no more um, social events or activities that mark these critical kind of um, transitions for young people. So prom has been canceled, graduations have been canceled, you know, kids transitioning from college into young adulthood, that's been kind of stalled. And, um, you know, these are opportunities where meaning is being made and important memories are being made with families and celebrations are happening. And all of that has come to a screeching halt. And so absolutely, this is affecting young people in ways in which they could never have imagined. Um, and to your other point, yes, I am the mom of a 23-year-old, my son Chandler is in his uh, last year of university. He goes to wow. school at William Jewell College and we're super proud of him. And let's just hope and pray that he walks across that stage May 15th. We're looking forward to celebrating that with him. Yes. Um, but it also has been you know, difficult um, as a result of the pandemic when he was home uh, and unable to go back to school. Um, I actually kind of witnessed my my young person living in my home really struggling. You know, he he's a psychology major and an athlete. He plays basketball on the team there. And uh, it was truly an adjustment for him, you know, truly an adjustment. Yes. And, and I'm glad you're bringing up also the situation of college students as well, Um, um and forgive me for misunderstanding that, you, that he is not actually a teenager anymore, but it definitely has affected people, uh, 18 and 24 year olds, uh, the college age set quite a bit. Absolutely. And speaking of schools, Ken Barrick, you've also said that you've been worried about what you've been seeing in elementary, middle and high schools as well. Can you tell us what's worrying you? Well, and, and let me break that into kind of two different answers, because the, the, what, the things that, that concern me for our teenagers uh, are very different than the things that I'm concerned about with young people. Um, and uh, for, for, for our teens, and particularly our teens that have been struggling the most, um, we're losing them. And, and we're losing them uh, to, um, to isolation. We're losing them to simply withdrawing in ways that we've never seen before. Um, and, and we're losing them even when we don't know they're losing them. Because before, when you were in a classroom, you might be able to zone out, but you couldn't just turn your screen off. Um, we're hearing about young people that are spending all day in their rooms on video games and haven't gone outside for a week and that's um, increasing both depression and anxiety in ways that we haven't seen prior to the pandemic. Um, for young kids, uh, the learning loss is profound. Mm. Um, and particularly the K through three um, youth. And, um, and then the, the increased stress for those who have parents that can be at home with them, that are trying to work from home and uh, be full-time parents. And even more difficult, uh, the parents that have had to stay at home with young kids um, that can't work, and then you have all of the financial stress. So it's one thing uh, on another. It, it, it's not additive, it's exponential. Um, and. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there. Well, you've laid out quite a few of the driving forces, the financial stresses. We've talked about the isolation. We've talked about the stress of remote school. 
What about with regards to special needs kids? I know the pandemic has really disrupted the kinds of services that they rely on in the community, at school. What are you seeing there, Ken Barrick? You know, in that area, I have to admit, we've had quite an interesting dialogue with our staff. Um, many of whom were so heroic that they insisted on putting themselves at, at risk because they were so concerned um, uh, about uh, our, our special needs students that that really were um, at loose ends that didn't have the support, uh, particularly those who had experienced trauma. So we've made extraordinary arrangements through our uh, medical department to take um, really uh, extra precautions before a vaccination so that we could see some of those young people that we were really worried about uh, because we were seeing real regression. We were seeing students who, who were really going backward. Um, so, uh, and, and for those that we can't reach out to and we're very concerned about how much both learning loss and emotional uh, loss that we're seeing. Another driving force that we haven't touched on yet, Dr. Ward, is just that kids are also grieving lost loved ones. Can you talk about the impact that losing people to the pandemic has had on young people? Absolutely, Mia. And this is the conversation that I'm surprised isn't getting more kind of attention uh, in this work. You know, what we know is more recently across the country, we've observed over a half a million people roundabout that have have died as a result of the pandemic. And each of those individual folks are connected to families and family systems and communities. And, uh, you know, of course, young people, children and youth are, are absolutely affected by that. And I think we absolutely should be spending more time thinking about how to support young people in their kind of their their grieving process. And one of the things that I'm particularly concerned about as as kind of the administration begins to talk about reopening the schools and having young people back in schools full time, um, to Ken's point and to this, this issue that you're raising, um, learning absolutely is gonna be an issue, but addressing you know the, the mental health concerns of kids, I think is gonna be kind of absolutely primary. Absolutely yes. primary. Yes, and I mean, the other thing too that we're hearing, Ken Barrick, is that there has been reports in terms of driving forces for kids' anxiety, stress, and sadness is reports of increased bullying or fears of bullying uh, that actually lead to more restriction and isolation uh, as kids do not go outside. This is something that I'm hearing more in the Asian American community. Well, I I, I want to separate the issues of COVID and what was going on before. That, that There has been increased tacit permission for bullying um, through the country. And, and believe me, that's rippled to youth. So when you then take youth that are socially isolated and subject them to primarily online bullying in this environment, um, it, it, the, the normal systems that would mitigate that, uh, uh, teachers uh, noticing it, extended family members noticing it, um, that doesn't happen. And so you can have an isolated youth that's subjected to tremendous online bullying um, and, and not know until there's a suicide attempt. Um, and I, I, my, my bigger concern about that ha has nothing to do with COVID. It has more to do with the fact that, that, that there's been a national trend towards 
um, somehow thinking that that kind of behavior is more okay. And, and I, I think, you know, it, it came from the very top. We watched name calling in presidential debates for the first time in history and youth watch that and youth uh, use that as an example. Uh, and then that, that ripples down. So it's, it's just, it's, it's not increased because of COVID. It's just, it's impact amplifies because of isolation. And Dr. Ward, one last thing I want to ask you about is just the impact of the length of time that this pandemic has gone on. You were mentioning how, especially in the beginning, we were very concerned about young people being denied important milestones and social events that they were looking forward to, like prom, like homecoming, like athletic competitions. And now those kinds of inabilities have, have become almost the norm over this the course of this year, what does the prolonged length of time do to young people? Absolutely, that's a great question. I, you know, it is really going to force us, Mina, to be thinking out of the box around how we navigate and pivot around this situation. So the good news is, you know, there seems to be kind of light at the end of the tunnel with vaccines becoming available and the hope on the horizon that things can kind of get back to normal by next year, you know, but in the meantime and in between time, it is really going to um, continue to force families to think out of the box about um, different ways in which they connect with their children and, and young people at home and um, consider, you know, ways in which they can um, leverage you know, their village, you know, the, the formal and informal networks of support that sustain us, that we're absolutely going to have to be tapping into those networks of support to get us through, you know, the remaining, you know, you know, six to 12 months of what it is that we're dealing with. We're talking with Dr. Nadia Ward, professor, psychologist and director at Clark University, Ken Barrick, president and CEO of Seneca Family of Agencies. And you, our listeners, are with us. For young people, do you feel like you have hit this pandemic wall or are struggling emotionally? For parents, what questions or concerns do you have about children's mental health? Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Email your comments to forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the mental health of children and teenagers. And we want to remind listeners, if you or someone you know may be considering suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-8255 or the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME, H-O-M-E, to 741741. We're talking with Ken Barrick, President and CEO of Seneca Family of Agencies, and Dr. Nadia Ward, Professor, Psychologist, and Director of the Sikowski Institute for Public Enterprise at Clark University. And you, our listeners, are with us. If you want to join the conversation with your questions or reactions to the mental health of children and teenagers, 
866-733-6786, Email us at forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. Dr. Ward, so what are kids really going through medically? Is it trauma? Um, is it grief, not just for, for lost loved ones, but but grief in terms of the losses of the kinds of things that they thought their life would be this past year? Absolutely, that is um, an aspect of it, um, certainly. Um, and then there's the other things, Mina, that, that we're talking about too, as Ken highlighted, which is, you know, particularly for um, young people, um, families of color that, that live in disenfranchised communities, Mina, they, they are struggling with unemployment, they're struggling with food insecurity, they're struggling with housing instability, dodging eviction notices left and right. And um, we're also noticing kind of increases in substance use and substance abuse. And all of those things have an impact on the life of a young person um, living in, in those circumstances. And so, so yes, um, depending on the severity of those experiences that young people are um, having to struggle with and manage through from a, from a trauma lens, um, absolutely that impacts how it is that they see themselves, how they see themselves in the world, the level of confidence, um, their ability to actually go to school and make connections, meaningful connections, and more importantly, kind of connect around the learning piece. Um, and so we absolutely want to be attending to and figuring out, um, and, and, and the thing that's also really concerning within the context of the school setting is that we already know that there are um, kind, of, uh, kind of fewer behavioral health practitioners and specialists available to support young people and families as mm -hmm. they transition back into, um, back into the school setting. So certainly need to be concerned about that and be thinking about other ways in which um, we could be leveraging community resources uh, yes. to support young people and families around this important issue. And as you were touching on earlier, just a lot of these issues that you discussed are really concentrated in Latino and Black communities and in certain Asian yeah. ethnic groups as well. Ken Barrick, you talked a little bit about some of the strategies to help special needs kids, but what are some ways that you are finding are helpful in this time in terms of strategies for helping young people? Um, first, creating connections and, and, and doing that. Uh, uh, we have not uh, taken full advantage in the past of our ability to connect people online. And uh, believe me, uh, that has been a revolution that occurred very, very quickly. Um, I was talking with one of our school groups who said that um, normally youth who would disappear immediately after school um, are staying, they're hanging out, they're, they're hanging out with each other informally and supporting those connections and, and supporting them becoming deeper than they might normally be online, not just a quick text, but a real check-in. How are you? How's your family? How can I support you? Those are really making a difference. Um, our, our teenagers are far more adept at using technology than the adults that we're supporting them were. So the teenagers have brought the adults along in creating 
uh, support networks that are more meaningful uh, rather than the more peripheral ones. Um, for younger kids, um, it, uh, I think um, adapting, for example, uh, one of our staff recorded an at-home bedtime story so that they could create connection and hold that connection with not just that youth, but that family. Um, uh, any way that you can bring people together and say, I'm here for you, uh, it is a way that gets folks through these incredibly stressful days. Well, let me go to caller Jillian in Richmond. Hi, Jillian. Hi. Thanks. Um, thank you so much for having this topic. It's, I'm seeing this in real time with my own kids. Um, I have two. One is in middle school and one is in high school. And my middle schooler asked me today if I had life insurance on her. Um, sorry. She just she cannot take this anymore. And I am on the verge of letting her be truant in school and just spending as much time with her as possible, taking her outside, doing some, you know, she needs something else. I'm um, part of a group that's really pushing hard to get the school district to reopen, West Contra Costa County School District. And I, you know, I hear there's equity issues. I hear it and I, I don't know what the solution is, but my daughter is on the edge. <sighs> sorry. Jill, no, no, please don't apologize. And thank you for, for sharing that. I am very sorry for what you are going through. Dr. Ward, your thoughts on what Jillian is saying? Jillian, first of all, thank you for your call. Um, I appreciate the courage that it took to make that call. And I appreciate your being able to kind of share with us in a really authentic way the pain that you and other parents like you are actually experiencing at this in this very, very difficult time. And I will always say, you know, in the work that I do with, with young people and, and moms and dads is take care of your children. Take care of your children. If you feel like your child can't take this anymore, right? And you are kind of in process of figuring out how to get, get her back into school and what have you, that's fine. But you know your child better than anybody else. And if, if you're feeling like your child needs more time with you, needs more time, you know, home time with you, quality time with you, like do that. You know, the concern that I also see is um, particularly for moms and dads who have to stay home. I myself am a single mom. Um, for, for moms that have to stay home with their child and they're also balancing these Zoom calls all day um, and feeling super pressed and stressed about, you know, needing to kind of attend to the child, but also needing to be, you know, online or on camera. You know, my value is if your child needs you, you, you bring them up, put them on your lap and say, hey, this is my reality. Or say, I got to take a break. I'll get back to you. My child comes first. You never get this time back. So, um, Ken, I'm sure you've got some insights about that, too. But my value is, you know, your child and your family come first, Jillian. Jillian, thanks. And, and Ken, yes, how can parents access help as well? Maybe both for themselves and their children, because there are barriers to getting help right now with the pandemic. It, there are barriers, but but there is there there are also avenues to get help, and um, uh, it, it can your 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 child is a is school age child. How old is your thirteen? Your daughter? Jillian's Thir child was thirteen. Middle school is thirteen. So um, so many of the schools, most of the schools now are creating um, more support networks and have access to mental health supports that could link and that could work with both of you to provide supports. I, I think 
I, I, I want to agree with Dr. Ward, the sensitivity that you're bringing to it, the fact that you understand what are and, and, and can be connected in the way that you're describing is so important. Um, and bringing in supports, not just for your child, but for both of you together um, could be really helpful. Um, there are linkage lines. The Cal Hope line is coming up next week, which is going to be available. And um, and the school districts typically have networks that that can support you and make sure that there's uh, more of an outlet and connection uh, for both you and your child. Doctor Ward, can what, I can I yes, also please, ask uh, Jillian if if actually she... Jillian has taken uh, the answer off the air, but okay, okay, go but, ahead. But I am curious, Doctor Ward, what mental health treatment looks like for you during the pandemic? How has it changed for you? I'm, I'm guessing there's a lot more teletherapy. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a loaded question, Mina. Um, <laughs> so here's where I stand on, on that topic. So um, uh, clearly, there are some absolute advantages to telehealth, right? You know, uh, uh, in the sense that Again, you know, if you are a family who uh, has particular challenges and difficulties kind of getting to that behavioral health professional, um, telehealth can absolutely be a good option. The concern I have, however, is the reliance on technology to help, you know, or at least um, provide some support and assistance around dealing with these issues. Um, a lot of the work that we do at the Institute is thinking about how do we develop behavioral health interventions that support adolescents and young adults that leverages digital health technologies. You know, I'm a little bit old school in, in the way that I do this work. I like being in the, in the presence of the clients that I'm working with. And our goal is, even though we recognize that young people are in a space where um, this generation has never, ever lived without a cell phone before, like we get like this is their life. You know, our job is to figure out how do you leverage those digital health technologies in a way that provides that connection, but also connects that young person or that family to a human being hmm. um, instead of the bots that are out there or kind of the AI, the artificial intelligence that kind of moves them through. So, um, so my value is, you know, yes, we want to leverage that technology to offer support, but but to the point of kind of connecting them with real people, real resources that help sustain, support um, relationships so that, that, that the work, the meaningful work can get done in the I've clinical been, space. I've been struck that you even um, noticed when, with regards to technology um, that leveraging technology as a way for kids to identify what it is that they're going through, that they do go online sometimes to almost self-diagnose. Yes. What yes. are sort of the the goods and bads of that? Um, the goods, the good part of that, Mina, is that they are um, recognizing that there is a crisis around the number of behavioral health specialists available to them, right? So they recognize I might not be able to find somebody that can help me and that they are leveraging the, the power and the strength of the internet to find information that can be of support to them. The problem, however, is that they have difficulty navigating what's kind of quality resources, what are the, the not so good resources. And then what I find in my own private practice, I'll have a, a young person that'll say, Dr. Ward, I went online and I did this, this mental health survey thing and I'm schizophrenic. 
Uh, no, you're not. That's the good news, you know. But so there's this kind of need to kind of really be educating young people and families about what are the, the appropriate resources that they can kind of connect with and use that can help them along their mental health journey. Um, and that's the other thing that we're doing at the Institute um, through our, our developing of behavioral health interventions, which is to say, here's the state of the art. You don't have to worry about curating the, the internet and figuring out what you need to find. We're gonna provide it for you. We're also going to give you a mental health screener that we actually like, that's validated and supported by research and evidence. And more importantly, we're going to talk with you about how you use those insights. We're not diagnosing folks on our app, but how do you use those resources to, again, connect you to a professional, a human being that can make that connection. So that's the good and the bad of it. Well, Mia writes, as a parent of a child with special needs and behavior challenges, I've had to think out of the box to an intense degree in normal times. We're also hitting a wall in terms of the pressure and serious need to continue to think out of the box. I would love to see more support for the family across the board. This listener tweets, our girl is 14 now and sorely missed the social aspects of school, even as she showed resilience with remote learning. We're fortunate her school worked very hard to create a pathway to hybrid in the fall. This year has left kids with setbacks in mental health and learning. We're joined now by Dr. Amanda Supley, pediatric psychologist at Valley Children's Healthcare, a pediatric healthcare network that serves California's Central Valley. And Dr. Supley, appreciate having you on. Hello, thank you for having me. Dr. Supley, we've been hearing a lot about the situation at hospitals, that hospital emergency rooms are seeing an uptick in kids who are coming to them. And we've also been talking a little bit just before you came on about how mental health uh, is treated, how mental health issues are treated. I'm wondering first, what what are you seeing in your emergency room or at your hospital? Are you seeing an increase in kids coming um, with issues related to their mental health? And what state do they tend to be in if once they get to the hospital? We are absolutely seeing an increase in patients, um, particularly for their mental health, whether they have um, been admitted for a suicide Suicide attempt. We've seen an increase in suicide attempts or suicidal gestures in our adolescent population, as well as those patients who get admitted for um, for medical reasons that are related to their mental health. So somatic symptoms that are related to just the stress going on in the world and the stress going on at home as well. And so, what? How do you treat kids once they're at the hospital? So my specialty is working with our inpatient unit. So the patients who are admitted for medical reasons to an inpatient facility. And so I do a variety of treatment modalities. Mostly it's related to evaluating their mental health and addressing that with behavior change or coping strategies, and then trying to set them up with resources in the outpatient world. We also have a wonderful team dedicated to working with our patients who are admitted for suicide attempts who might need um, in more intensive treatment and are transferred to other higher level of care hospitals. Uh, there hasn't yet been, I think, exact numbers on suicide deaths in 2020, and it's even a little bit harder to make the clear link to the pandemic, but I'm wondering if you think there is a very clear link here. Absolutely. I think over the last few years, we've seen an increase in adolescent mental health concerns and suicide attempts, suicide gestures, and suicidal behaviors in adolescents. But I think specifically, 
specifically for the pandemic, this has been a stressor for everyone and teenagers and even younger children are not immune to the stress of the pandemic. I think especially because academics and socialization is so important for development and those things have changed. We're not able to see our friends in the same way. We're not able to go to school in the same way. And so that has taken a direct hit on our mental health across age ranges. And we're really seeing it within the teenage populations. And so while we don't have Long-term data, we're not going to know. Preliminary data that's coming out saying there's absolutely a, a correlation with the start of the pandemic and the increase in mental health conditions. And do you feel like your hospital has the resources? That's been another issue that's come up to help serve this increase in, in young people coming with mental health issues. We try. You know, I think that's a hard thing for mental health across the board. There's just it is hard to find resources. And I think especially because of the increase, there can be waiting lists. And so my encouragement to all families is get yourself on a waiting list, talk to people because those waiting lists can easily go from eight months to two, two weeks if you stay with it and advocate. But we absolutely have increased our resources, both outpatient, inpatient resources on our Valley Children's Healthcare website. We have an entire behavioral health section that lists local Valley resources, but also national resources, just information from parent for parents. Sometimes parents just want to know what's going on, and that can be a great first step. And, and trying to figure out what's going on for their for their children. And so we have tried our best to increase the awareness and accessibility to resources in our area. And again, Dr. Amanda Supley is pediatric psychologist at Valley Children's Healthcare, a pediatric healthcare network that serves California's Central Valley. We're also with Dr. Nadia Ward, professor, psychologist, and director of the Moskowski Institute for Public Enterprise at Clark University, an institute focused on reimagining behavioral health for youth. And Ken Barrick is with us, president and CEO of Seneca Family of Agencies, a nonprofit mental health crisis and social services agency for children. And we'll get to more of your comments and calls right after the break. You can join us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Email us, forum at kqed.org, or post on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the mental health of children and teenagers with Ken Barrick of Seneca Family of Agencies, Dr. Nadia Ward at Clark University, and Dr. Amanda Supley at Valley Children's Healthcare in California's Central Valley. And you, our listeners, are with us. And let me go to Marie in Oakland. Hi, Marie. Thanks for waiting. Hi there. Thank you for taking my call. Um, my heart really goes out to the last caller. I mean, clearly so many women, our hearts are breaking as primary caretakers, you know, seeing what's happening to our children. And so my question is, 
seeing what has happened to my son and how the pandemic has impacted him, being 18 years old, missing out on prom and graduation, first year of college, how can we engage with them? What do we tell them? How do we give them hope for the future? Marie, thanks. Ken Barrick, I'll start with you. Well, I, I, I want to personally relate to that because uh, when this started, I had uh, an 18-year-old that was graduating from high school and uh, a 21-year-old that was graduating from college and both missed their face-to-face graduations. And I I think uh, first uh, we have to recognize what they're doing, that minimizing it is not helpful, uh, to understand that they are in a different situation and then to create alternatives that they help us create that are important to them and meaningful to them. and uh, uh, my son wanted to be connected with his friends for his graduation and celebrate with them. And so we had to find a way to do that, even though it was virtually. But but we brought really meaningful things together and, and encouraged them to talk to each other about what they meant to each other and about what this transition meant. And, and my daughter uh, really wanted to focus on next steps. She had a very different approach. I missed my graduation, it's over. So how do we connect her to what's important to her and then allow outlets? And I, I have to say with my colleagues uh, on the call, I, I do think there's a place for connecting with professionals that can provide support that are difficult uh, for parents to provide. In San Francisco, uh, just put in place a mobile response team to respond to um, uh, issues for schools and teachers so that teachers have access uh, for crisis in a different way. I think that was a terrific kind of intervention, but more on a day-to-day basis, connecting them to to each other and, um, and to help when they need it. Well, along these lines about this time, a senior year college, Gina writes, I have a senior who missed junior and senior year. She'd always had a goal of going to college on an athletic scholarship. But with the pandemic, these dreams came to a total standstill. With students in other states continuing to compete and go to in-person schools, she feels the division. As college acceptance and denial letters are currently coming in, this is a particularly stressful and worrisome time. Fortunately, we have our health jobs, a home, and family. Let's all have extra compassion for our youth. This listener writes, when I was eight, I considered suicide, and I figured out why I would not. Philosophically, my conclusion formed the basis of my happy life. If a child is contemplating suicide, this is a good time to create long-term stability in their lives. Hopefully, reasonable adults can assist. Dr. Supley, I wanted to ask you about young children talking about suicide um, and the best ways to respond to that. It, it can be quite extreme for parents. Either they're they're not sure what to make of it and, and don't want to make a big deal out of it because they're not sure the child really understands what they're saying, or uh, they, they really worry a lot, like it, it freaks them out. I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about, about understanding that in, in very young kids. Absolutely. It can happen in very young ages. And my first response to parents is always take it seriously, is that whenever a kid makes those statements, whether they understand the gravity of what those statements mean, or even the finality of what they're saying, it's coming from somewhere. It's a place that they are asking for help in some way. And so always to take those comments seriously and then working with a professional, whether it's a mental health provider or the PCP, um, primary care physicians or the school, working with school counselors 
counselors, school psychologists, the teachers, um, working with any professional to help you create a safety plan, a risk plan that can help you address the needs at your home with your child. But absolutely, we see these um, comments or gestures in younger and younger ages every year. um, And it's absolutely a concern to take seriously. Well, let me go to caller Krista in Mill Valley. Hi, Krista. Good morning. Um, I've been listening with great attention here because I am the mother of five and grandmother of 17 uh, grandchildren. Wow. And uh, one of my granddaughters, who is 13 going on 14, uh, who I have an extremely good relationship with, as I do with my others, but she confides in me a lot, and uh, I listen to her a lot with great and open heart. And she has been telling me about the extraordinary bullying that's going on and uh, the uh, impact that's having not only on her, but uh, on two of the children that she knew of committing suicide. And I'm wondering if that bullying situation can either be related to the stress or just, I don't know what, but I'm extremely frustrated at hearing how much bullying is going on and the increase in suicides in addition to our, uh, you know, what's going on in the world right now. But it seems to have made it even more... um, urgent that we Mm. take a look at why what causes kids to be so incredibly you know difficult and mean at times and has caused in particularly two cases has led to suicide dr uh, yes krista thank you doctor i'm dr nadia ward i wanted to ask you if you wanted to to help krista here well first of all what i'm appreciating krista about your call is your clear commitment to family you, you know you're a mom of five you're a grandma and i love that your your middle school aged uh uh child is is connecting to you in a really meaningful way and that's that's really wonderful um here's the thing you know cyberbullying as 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 our our colleague here kenna shared has been around Um, It is exacerbated as a result of the pandemic because kids are spending, simply spending more time online. I will share with you that we have some amazing hotshot young people that literally, they're interns at Clark that work with me and their sole job is to get get on the internet, look at these various platforms and gain greater understanding and awareness around where all of this, like kind of what is going on uh, online on these platforms where young people are kind of doing these things. You know, absolutely we're seeing many of these influencers, social media influencers who have recently suicided as a result of what what this caller is sharing. Um, The challenge that we have, and this is what, you know, my interns are sharing with me. They're saying, Dr. Ward, what happens is when young people kind of get on these various platforms and websites, and the more time they spend on them, the more of that kind of content they get exposed to, if you understand what I'm saying. So if you're spending more time on on on, on sites where there's negative messaging, where young people are bullying each other, and and they're kind of down a rabbit hole, if you will, with that, it's harder to pull them out of it. And we have to really be thinking in, in new and different ways about how to, in essence, infiltrate that, disrupt those algorithms, right? So that we can actually pull those young people back, right? And, and allow them to make the meaningful connections they need to make with positive people in their life. And that is a challenge. And so 
there is no way we can work around this issue without involving young people in the solution. They absolutely have to support us adults in thinking about how do you begin to address this and untangle what it is that you're seeing um, in the life of, of your children there. Dr. Supley, what are some signs that we should be on the lookout for with regard to a child being in a mental health crisis or needing immediate support? And where are the first places that people like Krista can go? Who should they turn to first? Absolutely. So we always look for changes in behavior, changes in mood, whether they are more more irritable, more withdrawn than normal, um, sleeping more, sleeping less, eating more, eating less, just really looking for those key changes that are different for your child. Because again, every child is different. Um, maybe they're spending more time in their room than well, a lot of us are spending more time in our rooms and, and, and alone, but what is really, they're, they're not interacting in the same ways that, that we would expect them to. And so if you start to notice changes in behaviors, having conversations and open conversations about how they're coping with everything, validating that this is hard. Um, we often just go day to day without thinking about our emotions and parents do the same thing because they have stress and their jobs and households to take care of, but maybe having to set aside some time where you have conversations about what is going on. How are we feeling? How are you feeling and sharing that to allow your children to feel comfortable sharing that with you? And then certainly first steps, if you ever become concerned, if you ever have an inkling that something is wrong, that's the first place to start. Never second guess your own gut intuition about your child and to say, um, is this normal adolescence or is this a concern? Because it's always worth checking out whether it's with the pre primary care pediatrician, whether it's with the school teacher to see what they're seeing in class, whether it's with um, the school counselor, other trusted adults in their life always question that. And if it turns out to be normal adolescence, then that's great. But at least you have a place and that you were able to get the support that you needed as well. Dr. Subley, would you say that most teenagers and young adults, like most, have, have done okay through the pandemic? We're focusing on those that have not. But if their families were able to stay financially stable, to avoid COVID-19, for example, and so on, that there may be some sadness, there may be some irritability and, and missing friends and a little bit of loneliness, but that for the most part, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're in a mental health emergency. You know, we are actually seeing upwards, preliminary data is showing that upwards of 50% of adolescents are showing increased or clinically significant symptoms of depression and anxiety. So I'd be willing oh, to bet wow. that most are actually really struggling right now. Whether that means long-term effect of having a diagnosis of anxiety and depression after the pandemic, we don't know. We don't know what this is going to look like. But for right now, we're seeing a lot of adolescents who are really struggling. And this is going across, you know, socioeconomic status because socialization, academics, being with our friends is across the board important for adolescents. Um, having that independence is so important. And now we're stuck at home and we're mm -hmm. not able to do the things that we're normally able to do. That being said, there are levels, normal levels of sadness right now. There are normal levels of stress and anxiety and feeling withdrawn and isolated. And that's when it's even more important to start having those conversations and, and to 
be honest with your children too about how you're feeling and how you're coping with everything too. And so that you can create this safe space in your home about, about emotions and, and coping through things that are difficult. Well, thank you for that sobering clarification. Dr. Supley is pediatric psychologist at Children's Valley Children's Healthcare in the Central Valley. Dr. Nadia Ward, professor, psychologist, and director at Clark University, and Ken Barrick, president and CEO of Seneca Family of Agencies. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A couple more comments I'd like to share. Joan writes, my son is in ninth grade and has had a really hard time with online learning. He's failed almost all of his classes. He has depression, so learning unfortunately has taken a back seat. But I have friends with kids who are doing great with online school. Seems like it'll be really hard to, to teach when some kids are so much further ahead. I'm worried that kids like my son will just give up on school entirely. Todd writes, the interesting to me is my Zoom high schoolers seem to lack any interest in people in their classes and prefer to spend time with virtual communities dispersed around the globe. Should I as a parent be restricting this? Do we need to organize playgroups for these kids or is this a bias of Gen Xer parents? I, I worry about reintegration into the real world, but has this been their world their whole lives? Any thoughts for, for Todd or Joan, Dr. Ward? Those are both really, really good, good, good questions. Um, and, 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 you know, I am going to encourage parents um, to the best of their ability to really um, make effort to appreciate and understand what their child is actually doing online. You know, um, I remember when my son was a little bit younger in high school and I would kind of go into his room and he'd be playing a game with someone in a whole nother country didn't know who the, you know, you know, and all of that can be very scary terrain for parents. And so number one, I'm going to just be old school and say, you know, really talk to your young person about the limits that you want them to have online and be realistic about that with them, because it's just simply not healthy um, to, for them to constantly be online and constantly chatting with folks who knows where and places who knows where, and they, and you're not aware of that. And that's where potentially parents can absolutely observe difficulty where you, you know, messaging that could be negative that they're receiving from, from people and, and, and you're completely not aware. And then, and then a crisis happens that you have to um, attend to, unfortunately. So I would be talking to my young person about, you know, providing some, some, structure and some boundaries around how much time they're actually spending online doing things and what are they actually looking at and attending to and generate conversation about that, understanding about those kinds of things. Um, with regard to um, the, the question that related to young people in schooling and, um, and concern about reintegration back into school, a um, couple of things that we're seeing nationally that I'm seeing in, as my as my colleagues share with me in different parts of the country, absenteeism, chronic absenteeism and school refusal and school dropout is at ridiculously high rates. You know, um, there was a call that I had with, with a, a colleague in North Carolina very recently, and she was sharing with me that they have not seen dropout rates at, at this level, you know, in the, in the years that she's been doing this work in schools and certainly concerned about how to re-engage young people. Um, the other issue is you're having class, kids are supposed to be online and they've got their videos off. They don't wanna be really interacting with their peers. And so all of that is, is also of concern to be thinking about. And then the stress that 
teachers have with this whole piece. You know, I've heard colleagues share with me, you know, I just don't feel as effective in my role teaching and supporting young people in this manner. Um, and I don't know how much more I can take of it. So there's absolutely, again, and it seems like to be a theme with our colleagues here on this call, is to be creating sacred safe spaces for young people and parents to have conversation and dialogue about how this is affecting them. And then thinking about that those formal and informal networks of support that can help you in addressing some of these, these issues. And, you know, to, to be courageous in um, having conversations with your older teenager about, you know what, a couple of hours is, is what we're gonna do at home. You know, we're gonna spend some more time as a family making a meal together right? Going outside and doing something, you know, active there. Um, and so changing the script around those pieces is going to be really important as we as we continue to deal with the effects of this pandemic. Well, a couple of final thoughts. Susan writes, one strategy that might help students is to focus on two areas. One is to think about what you will do differently when you return and what insights you gleaned from this time. It's likely that some less focused students will also find a new appreciation for education. And James writes, I was beat up every day in high school and I was glad to not have to attend in person anymore. I can learn better without the painful socialization. I'm attending Harvard now and I'm very happy, but I do not miss high school. COVID has actually been the best year of my life. One of the things that I feel like I'm hearing from all of you is that ultimately though, we cannot assume that the end of the pandemic will be the end of the distress that some of these students uh, have experienced, though glad to hear James has not, uh, and that there will be effects to this that will take time and that we should take the time to understand them. So thank you so much, Dr. Ward, Dr. Supley, and also Ken Barrick of Seneca Family of Agencies. Really appreciate having all of you on. And also thanks to our callers for sharing their stories and struggles. And thanks to Blanca Torres for producing today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.